What's up, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I am your host, Rob Santos, and I am joined, as I always am, of course, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And for this episode, well, this has been one that we've been working up to for quite some time now, because the time is nigh, finally, to begin our journey through the works of the notorious Mr. Gene Wolfe, starting, of course, with the Book of the New Sun, Shadow of the Torturer. Chapters one through three today. Now, Drew, my good friend, what is it that you have begun? Yeah. So typically, um, you know, I would just jump right into a uh, a summary of, you know, kind of a plot summary of what we read. But for this episode, I want to do, mm. you know, uh, I, I want to talk about Gene Wolfe. And the book of the new sun and kind of provide some background of like what, what exactly we're getting into, because I'm sure many of our listeners will be aware of, of what this series is, who Gene Wolfe was and, and the impact he had on uh, the science fiction fantasy genres over the last, you know, 40 years. Uh, but many, many won't uh, despite the, um, kind of notoriety that he has in some circles, Gene Wolfe was not like a massive popular bestseller. Uh, he wasn't one of these household names like a J.K. Rowling or or J.R.R. Tolkien or even a, a Robert Jordan or, you know, someone like that or a Brandon Sanderson. Uh, but for the, in the writing community, in the writing professional community, Gene Wolfe was incredibly highly regarded um, you know, you're going to, you're going to read quotes, hear interviews from authors where they talk about Gene Wolfe in the highest of terms. Uh, Neil Gaiman, a, a an extraordinarily popular, successful Love writer, uh, was basically Gene Wolfe's protege. And Gaiman has talked about Wolfe as, um, basically during his life, said that Wolfe was the greatest living writer of the English language. Yeah. If Gaiman uh, is Bruce Lee, uh, you know, Michael Swanwick, another yeah. another popular author, had similar opinions. Gene Wolfe was great friends with Ursula Le Guin, who's, again, a highly regarded author, and she respected Wolfe tremendously. Uh, they were very good friends. And Wolfe's work, not only his novel-length stuff, but his short stories, his novellas, were nominated for like every award under the sun. I mean, you could go look up Gene Wolfe on Wikipedia and look at his award nominations and the list just goes on and on and on. Um, but he wasn't just a writer. Wolfe was a, a tremendously intelligent person. Uh, he was an engineer by trade for most of his life. Uh, he, he wrote the book of the new son uh, when he was still like working a day job, you know? Uh, and as part of his day job, he actually invented the machine that makes Pringles. <laughs> like the the snack I, ship, I, I somehow forget that every time, and it's a it's a delight to learn. Yeah, uh, and and there's there's sort of an urban legend that goes around with that. Like if you look at the the logo of Pringles, it actually kind of looks like Gene Wolfe. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's not actually modeled after Gene Wolfe, but it's funny to to look at it and, and see those similarities. Is it uncanny? Yeah, um, huh. but yeah, Wolfe was. Wolf is a writer who challenges readers. 
And uh, going back to Neil Gaiman, he wrote a, a great short article some years back just titled How to Read Gene Wolfe. And I'm not going to read the whole thing uh, because he has a, you know, there's there's several paragraphs of kind of how he met Gene Wolfe and, and what Wolfe was like. But then he has nine items in the list of how to read Gene Wolfe. Number one, trust the text implicitly. The answers are in there. Number two, do not trust the text farther than you can throw it, if that far. It is tricksy and desperate stuff, and it may go off in your hand at any time. Number three, reread. It's better the second time. It will be even better the third time. The books will subtly reshape themselves where you are away from them. Peace, one of his other uh, popular books, really was a gentle Midwestern memoir the first time I read it. It only became a horror novel on the second or third reading. Number four. There are wolves in there, prowling behind the words. Sometimes they come out in the pages. Sometimes they wait until you close the book. The musky wolf smell can sometimes be masked by the aromatic scent of rosemary. Understand, these are not today wolves, slinking grayly in packs through deserted places. These are the dire wolves of old, huge and solitary wolves that could stand their ground against grizzlies. Number five. Reading Gene Wolfe is dangerous work. It is a knife-throwing act, and like all good knife-throwing acts, you may lose fingers, toes, earlobes, or eyes in the process. Gene doesn't mind. Gene is throwing the knives. Number six, make yourself comfortable. Pour a pot of tea. Hang up a do not disturb sign. Start at page one. Number seven, there are two kinds of clever writer. The ones that point out how clever they are, and the ones who see no need to point out how clever they are. Gene Wolfe is of the second kind, and the intelligence is less important than the tale. He is not smart to make you feel stupid. He is smart to make you smart as well. Number eight. He was there. He saw it happen. He knows whose reflection they saw in the mirror that night. And number nine. Be willing to learn. And I want, Rob, I want Mm -hmm. you to keep this in mind as we read through the book of the new sun. I hope our readers will keep good this in mind as we read through the book of the new sun. As uh, I know many people uh, I've I've talked to people online, talked to people on discord, Facebook, who've said they've been holding off on reading the book of the new sun until we cover it. So I know we're going to have some first time readers. Um, I got a great idea. Do you check this out? (laughs) What if for our wrapping up uh, Gene Wolfe episode, you know, if, and when that happens, we go through that list one more time and we talk about, what exactly each of those means for this series as a whole. Like, you know, we, we could, could do break that. it down yeah. and observe them individually we could definitely and link do them that. to what has been wrought. That'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like that idea. Um, but yeah. So like this is, <laughs> this is a pretty monumental undertaking that we're doing, uh, especially as a writing focused podcast. Uh, this is, an incredibly intimidating thing for me because, you know, I, I always like to say when I'm criticizing the, the writing styles and structures of and authorial decisions of other books and series that I'm not trying to say like, I could have done it better. I'm not a, I'm not saying I'm a better writer than X, Y, Z author. Um, but I feel like I usually have like a solid grasp on the writing techniques they're using 
Gene Wolfe is so far beyond me <laughs> in terms of writing skill that approaching the book of the new sun from a writer's perspective is something that I'm really going to be focusing on that number nine, you know, be willing to learn. I hope I'm going to learn things reading these books, rereading these books now. Um, but with a little bit of a different perspective, uh, you know, I, I haven't stopped on any of my prior reads to really consider his, his word choices or um, his sentence structure, his chapter structure, things like that. And I'm looking forward to doing so going forward. Yeah. I am definitely measuring my approach to this world and this writing. And it's, 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 it's funny because I've just started also playing this as a side. This is going to sound like a side note, but bear with me. I've just started playing Elden Ring, the newest yeah. edition. And, you know, my first attempt, Rob Santos, at any of the Souls games, you know, which are notoriously difficult in the gaming world in the same way I imagine that Gene Wolfe is notorious in the literary landscape, you know, for ease of access and for entry. And my approach to both is, is actually remarkably similar. I'm not I'm not diving in, you know, launching myself towards the end, focusing on the end game as I have a habit of doing as a reader. I'm going to have to learn to change, to adjust because I'm taking my time with this one. I'm taking the yeah. time to retread if need be. I'm treating each new paragraph like the new foe in Elden Ring, you know, studying, <laughs> learning its motions, anticipating how that next piece was designed to follow. Uh, Slow and inexorable, best described my attempt at reading uh, Book of the New Sun for the first time. And it's, it's already been quite the experience, even by Chapter 3. Excellent. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that, and yeah, I like that analogy. Dope. Yeah. Yeah, it occurred uh, to me. I was like, yeah, this is very similar. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, so that said, that's our it. summary of the first three chapters. Mm. The Book of the New Sun opens with the torturer's apprentice, Severian, returning from a swim along with his fellow apprentices, only to find the gate back onto the grounds of the Citadel, specifically the necropolis below the Citadel, locked. Local volunteer guards arrive and let them in after an argument, and Severian soon finds himself embroiled in a fight as mysterious figures are in the graveyard, digging up a body. Severian saves one of them, named Vodalus, who in turn gives Severian a coin. We get a brief flashback to the swim before that night, where Severian found himself tangled in waterbound roots and is saved by what he perceived to be a massive woman under the water. He then proceeds to describe the layout of the citadel and the Matachin Tower in which the torturers work, before ruminating on the coin Vodalus gave him and ultimately hiding it in an old mausoleum on the grounds. So, we are three chapters in, and we have been introduced to our main character, We've been introduced to our setting a little bit. Uh, we've been given some side characters. We've been given some hints at a larger plot. But to start off, I want to hear from Rob here. Yeah, hit me up then. You're three chapters in. What's your yeah, first three. impression? <laughs> um, I, I do distinctly recall texting you at one point. I think it was WTF am I reading right now? <laughs> uh, something very, or, so, so, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of course. It's, mm -hmm. it's a slow, I mean, it's, it's a lot of things out that come to mind that are, that are very obvious on the surface. It's a slow burn. It's not, there's, there, there aren't fireworks, but there's definitely something engaging, something to hook me, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it, the, the, it's an often, it's way overused analogy, but it's like reading music. 
not I mean on as hmm. sheet music. It's like music for the eyeballs. The, the 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 sentence structure is gorgeous. There are so many run on comma 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 comma, but it doesn't feel awkward. It doesn't feel like it's limping. So many of his stylistic choices are giving me pause and giving me reason to smile after I realize, you know what, it it all works on a whole. It's 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 such a weird experience. I've never I've definitely never read anything like this before. <laughs> um, but it's all it's honestly jumping into a new big paragraph now does give me the feeling like again I'm going to bring up Elden Ring like walking out of a cave mouth into a giant open world and just seeing that Erd tree there just just seeing this gorgeous landscape I'm excited going into every single paragraph I, I honestly am it's a I've, it's it's not a reading experience that I've had yet on this podcast for sure and I don't think I'll surprise you at all but <laughs> yeah 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 and and so when you bring up that the idea of like the commas, comma after nice. comma after comma. Um, this is one thing that really leaps out about Wolf's writing style. And this is one of the things that really is demanding because he has no problem writing meandering labyrinthine sentences, sentences that are a page long or two thirds of a page long. And he, again, of course, does not shy away from yeah. advanced vocabulary and so when you have to stop and think about the words you're reading, as you're reading a sentence that's like 80 words long, it's easy to lose track of what you're actually reading. And you're you're spending time thinking about the individual words rather than what is this whole sentence saying? And even sometimes when you're concentrating on what the sentence is saying, it's hard to keep track of like sub clauses and, you know, uh, asides and, and parentheticals that he doesn't use parentheses for and... Uh, but when you stop and then you go back and reread it and you kind of let, let the rhythm of the sentence flow over you, you realize that there, there is a musicality to his sentence structure. He doesn't always use these super long sentences. And I think he's in fact, very judicious about how he uses them. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah. He often leads up to them with efficient short sentences and then hits you with a long one usually involving some uh, beautiful description or a rumination on philosophy or or the facts of life kind of thing um it, and i'm going to quote one example of this uh and we're going to talk about this we're going to talk about this particular quote in a couple of different contexts but we're going to start off on just the sentence structure here and this is from page 21 in, in chapter one we believe that we invent symbols. That is a very short, very direct uh, sentence that comes with all kinds of implications, right? Like you could just read that sentence and stop there and have a full-on debate right? with somebody over what that sentence means and whether you think it's true, whether you think if it is true, it matters, you know. But then he goes on and he says, the truth is that they invent us. We are their creatures, shaped by their hard, defining edges. So it's a, a slightly longer sentence, a, a slightly more complex sentence. He throws a semicolon in there after the truth is that they invent us. Hmm. And again, this adds another layer to this philosophy, and we, we can talk about that later. But then it goes on. When soldiers take their oath, they are given a coin, and a simi stamped with the profile of the autarch. And that's, again, a slightly longer sentence, but still fairly straightforward. And then he hits you with it. 
Their acceptance of that coin is their acceptance of the special duties and burdens of military life. They are soldiers from that moment, though they may know nothing of the management of arms. That is one sentence. There's a, yeah. an M dash in the middle of it. It's growing longer. I did not know that then, but it is a profound mistake to believe that we must know of such things to be influenced by them. And in fact, to believe so is to believe in the most debased and superstitious kind of magic. Now we have a much longer sentence. <laughs> You know, and so as he moves through this paragraph, each huh. sentence adds layers to the idea that we're discussing, and it each sentence gets longer and longer and more complex. And it ends with, The would-be sorcerer alone has faith in the efficacy of pure knowledge. Rational people know that things act of themselves or not at all. That's, again, one sentence. And that sentence, you're just like, wait, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> you know, and and so <laughs> you have to go. To a lot of this. Go ahead. You have to go back to the beginning of the paragraph to really start digging into what this all means, because by the time you get to the end of that, it's easy to kind of lose track of this whole train of thought. You know, you start getting distracted by ideas of soldiers, and and you start th- seeing the symbolism of the coin because he's talking about symbols. But then he starts talking about knowledge and rationality, you know, and so he he has this incredible way of combining dynamic and varied sentence structures with high concept ideas. And that's where I think the real beauty of this story comes in. And I'm glad that he hits you with it right away because he tells you, you know, in chapter one, multiple times in chapter one. This is what you're getting in for. You know, I can I can flip back to page 19, another example of of the uh, complex sense. This is one sentence that I'm about to read. Many times since then, when I have stood upon a shaky platform in some marketplace square uh, with terminus s at rest before me and a miserable vagrant kneeling at my feet, when I have heard in hissing whispers the hate of the crowd and sensed what has what was far less welcome, the admiration of those who find an unclean joy in pains and deaths not their own, I have recalled Vodalus at the graveside, and raised my own blade, half pretending that when it fell, I would be striking for him. Mm. Whew. Yeah, I've, I've got another check. It is my nature, my joy, and my curse to forget nothing. That one sentence. Every uh-huh. rattling chain and whistling wind, every sight, smell, and taste remains changeless in my mind, and though I know it is not so with everyone, I cannot imagine what it can mean to be otherwise, as if one had slept when when in fact an experience is merely remote. That yep. was also one sentence. And when you when when Wolf serves it up like that as one big piece, as a critical reader, as somebody who's 172, 173, whatever episodes into inking aloud proper <laughs> I'm, 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 I can't help but take it as a whole. I'm taken aback, and I'm looking for the seams. I'm looking for where it fits together. I'm looking at each of these individual commas, and I'm trying to find the redundancy, and it's not there. He, it's perfect. It is a perfectly constructed sentence, and it also does what, it, what he needs it to do. It's, it's I want to say humbling, but humbling feels like intimidating. Inspiring, I suppose, is 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 a far yes. better word. Although it's another one that I'm using way way too often these days as well. But it really is an inspiring thing to just watch because I just again a sentence at this length on paper 
doesn't seem like it's going to flow, and somehow it's seamless. Mm-hmm. And it he makes it flaw. feel effortless. Like I, I've read a lot of stuff. I've and I've said it many times that Gene Wolfe is, for my money, the best prose stylist I've ever read. And part of it is because I've read other authors trying to write like this, and it comes across as laborious. Like you can feel the blood, sweat, and tears they put into their book, painstakingly stitching their sentences together to use elevated diction and complex sentence structures. And with Gene Wolfe, it just feels like inevitable. It feels like the most natural thing in the world that this story is being told in this way. Mm. It's like a bunch of rocks sliding down a mountain and the landslide and forms a castle. <laughs> Wait, how? <laughs> it just looks so natural and yet it forms something so beautiful. Yep. Yeah. It is uh, nice. And then, so let's, let's actually jump off from that quote that you just brought up. Okay. Okay. And talk about another one of the key elements of what makes the book of the new sun so lauded, so legendary, so studied. And that is, our narrator, we are reading a first-person perspective from Severian, the, the torturer's apprentice, and he tells us almost immediately, I have a perfect memory. <laughs> the audacity of that is, it still makes, it gives me an evil chuckle. Multiple times in the first chapter, he, he points out that he has... Uh, a perfect memory. Uh, it right. is, in fact, I think on For the better or worse. second page. Just as all that appears imperishable tends toward its own destruction, those moments that at the time seem the most fleeting recreate themselves, not only in my memory, which in the final accounting loses nothing, but in the throbbing of my heart and the prickling of my hair, making themselves new just as our commonwealth reconstitutes itself each morning in the shrill tones of its own clarions. Yep. It's easy to read that and kind of like miss the fact that there's a parenthetical in the middle of that sentence saying, Mm. my memory is flawless. I don't forget things. In the final accounting, it loses nothing. Yeah. And then a couple. In the final accounting. Go ahead. Yeah. And then a couple of pages later is the quote you brought up, you know, uh, it It is is my my nature, nature, my joy, joy, and my my curse curse to forget nothing. Yeah. You know, and yet, so that, that is on page 13. It is my nature and my joy and my curse to forget nothing. There is a long paragraph that that is the beginning of. In the next paragraph, there was a shot, a thing I had never seen before, the bolt of violet energy splitting the darkness like a wedge so that it closed with a thunderclap. Somewhere a monument fell with a crash. Silence, then, in which everything around me seemed to dissolve. We began to run. Men were shouting far off. I heard the ring of steel on stone as if someone had struck one of the grave markers with a battle air. I dashed along a path that was, or at least then seemed, completely unfamiliar, a ribbon of broken bone just wide enough for two to walk abreast that wound down into a little dale. In that sentence, the next paragraph after trumpeting his perfect memory, he openly points out that he's lying. He says, I dashed along a path that was, or at least then seemed, completely unfamiliar. He admits that the path should have been familiar to him. I completely missed that. You just blew my mind. One paragraph after after repeating himself saying that he has a perfect memory. 
Oh boy. Ooh, and this, boy. this is why. See, I had, I had very, like on the same track, in the recesses of my mind, we stand shivering there even now. Another quote. And I had, I had seen that. I had taken that. I had quoted it in my notes and I wrote, oh, okay, so this is a recounting afterward. You know, the narrator is going to have a wider view and I'm already questioning this narrator immediately. So the fact, now that you have pointed out that he has contradicted himself inside the space of a paragraph, however gorgeously constructed it may or may not be, that's, mm-hmm. I just, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love how it, go, it, it completely tracks. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's our first big signifier that our narrator may, may not be totally trustworthy. This is, there are unreliable narrators and then there are unreliable narrators. You know, when we talk about a character like Matt Cawthon or, or really we talk about any of the, the characters in The Wheel of Time or uh, A Song of Ice and Fire or The Stormlight Archive, whatever, we, we talk about this close third person perspective. And we often discuss it in terms of unreliable narrators as, you know, because we're seeing the story through their lens, that we're getting their perspective on the world, and they may not be accurately imparting the events to us, or or may not be accurately reporting the events because they're interpreting the events through their own personality, you know, where, where we talk about a, a character like Matt Cawthon or, or Nynaeve Almira in the Wheel of Time or, you know, whatever. Um, we talk about them as unreliable narrators, but that's a very different sort of literary technique than what this is. This is an explicitly unreliable narrator who states something and, and, and we have to think about the context of this story in the world that it's set. This is something like more like Croker in the Black Company, where this is an artifact being written by Severian at some point later in his mm-hmm. life. So he is writing this for a purpose. With Croker in the Black Company, we know from the get-go what the purpose of that is. He's the company record keeper. His job is to record the events of what they do and and memorialize the members of the company who fall in, in the service of... of of the company, you know, and with Severian here, we don't know why he's writing this down. And that adds doubt to this because he is telling us right away. I have a perfect memory. Trust what I'm saying. And when you don't know why he's saying these things and you just have to take it at face value that he is telling the truth, you know, that adds complexity to the story. And then, and then we, we look at another moment in, in chapter one, which brings in another type of unreliability. Uh, this is when Severian saves Votilus. Votilus stumbles and, and there's a, a man with an ax, you know, the ax rose to strike. I grasped the helve just below the head, almost by reflex and found myself at once in the struggle, kicking, then striking. Quite suddenly it was over. The volunteer whose bloodied weapon I held was dead. The leader of the volunteers was writhing at our feet. The pikeman was gone. His pike lay harmlessly across the path. Severian just skipped over, like, all the important action. We don't know how these guys got killed. We don't know where the third guy went. 
Mm. All Severian says is, I grabbed the, the axe and then I was struggling and I came away with the axe. But the implication, if you read between the lines, is Severian just killed a dude. He just yep. murdered somebody. Yep. I but he doesn't a, outright say it. I, I took that as a, as a note of the kind of character he is because for someone like him, not to take the time to describe this, it, it makes you wonder how blasé he is about dishing that kind of thing in the first place. How if he's taking the time to describe the things he is and to try and get you to trust him, but he's not going to take the time to explain how he kills this person. It's just so unimportant to him. It's such an indicator of, of the kind of character I feel like he's going to be. I remember you guys talking about Severian in another episode of ours where we talked about most hated characters, I believe it was. So, uh, Oh, I don't know who was, was saying hated Severian was their most hated character. No, no, maybe it was something in that same episode and you guys brought him up for something Pat else. may have had it as among his favorite characters. There we go. That, that's likely what it um, was. But but so with Severian, like so the way you're reading into that, that that's absolutely a valid reading of like what sort of a man am I dealing with? Well, yeah. what sort of a boy am I dealing but with? I was Although of the, of the narrators, that's <laughs> another thing uh, we should we should touch on. Um, he is a boy, although he tells uh-huh. us in chapter one, the night was to mark the beginning of my manhood. Uh, you know that's quite a statement, and so I think from that statement we can take from it that. This is the first time he's killed a person. I, oh, yeah. You know, th- this is his, if this knight is his transition into manhood, there are obviously a couple of different things that come out of it. Um, he meets Vodalus. He gets the coin, which, according to himself, the coin changes him, even though he doesn't realize that the coin is changing him, that he is being shaped by the symbol. And he killed somebody. You know, so there, there are some different ways to look at that. But the way I look at him killing this guy and the way he describes it is that he's trying to get whoever's reading this to sympathize with him. And if he starts it off by saying, oh, yeah, and, and I just murdered a dude in cold blood. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's not getting off on a very good foot. Right. So <laughs> well, he's. He's I imagine it is, no. <laughs> telling his story and he has to keep this in here because it is important to his formation as a human being, as a boy transitioning into manhood. He has to keep this in, but he doesn't want to admit the evil thing he did. I hadn't because it is I, in cold blood. He's literally yeah, just standing oh there watching. God. He's watching Vodalus, the guy he saves, just robbed a grave. Like, what the heck? You know, like, what's going on there, right? You know, like, why the heck are these people... Like, why is there a community guard that comes around every night to watch over the graves? Like, yeah. and why is this dude with a apparently a beautiful woman and a bodyguard of some sort who has a, a an energy gun <laughs> robbing a grave yeah. and who immediately flies away in... Um, uh, a like a silver aircraft of some sort. The fog swallowed him long before he reached the rim, and a few moments later, a silver flyer as sharp as a dart screamed overhead. You know, so what is yep. this dude doing robbing graves from people who have like clubs and rudimentary knives and pikes? That's interesting. 
That's yeah. interesting. And and oh, why yeah. does Severian decide to defend him? Why does Severian murder somebody in this moment? Do you buy Severian's? Uh, do you, no, do you buy his? Not not at all. I was his I mean, explanation. Yeah, I was confused around this scene in general, mostly because of the lack of description of how he had committed his first kill. But yeah, no. Uh, amongst all the questions that did kind of get lost, I just I didn't buy it immediately. I I, I didn't. I didn't stop. Yeah, to think and about so. It, and so that brings in it, it. We're not even through chapter one. Well, really, now we're we're through chapter one, and we have a mountain of evidence here that our narrator is either lying or hiding information from us, and it could be for a variety of different reasons. Hmm. Like, what a bold thing to do! What a bold yeah. choice as an author to say, like, I'm going to yeah. write a story like this. <laughs> a story like this what and now like? and now on on this idea of um writing style here uh let's talk about the chapter titles okay so we have chapter one is resurrection and death yeah chapter two is severian and chapter three is the autarch's face resurrection and death i feel like there's an easy way to look at this one, right? You know, this is a chapter in which somebody is killed. Severian kills a person. It's a chapter in which we see people digging up a body from a grave. You know, that can be an idea of like, there's your death and resurrection, right? Mm -hmm. But Gene Wolfe loves having layered meanings to his titles, to uh, his chapter titles. And there's another way to look at this. Resurrection and death. Severian starts us off by saying this was the night in which he'd nearly drowned. That he nearly died, but was resurrected. Also, you could look at it as Severian saying, this is the night that I became a man. This is a resurrection of a different sort. That's that how I took it. My youth died and I was resurrected as an adult. I didn't yeah. even consider the first two. I didn't even consider the first two because the, uh, the the almost drowning took place in chapter two, didn't it? It did. So chapter two, he rewinds to earlier that day when he goes for a swim yeah, with yeah, with yeah. the boys. Okay, that's yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting, interesting. <laughs> you paying closer attention to the chapter titles going forward. Next one is Triskelly. Sounds almost like a Finnish word. So Tris this is Triskelly. an interesting thing. Hmm. Um, when I read it the first time, in my mind, I pronounced that Triskelly. Uh, we'll, but we'll get that. Um, we'll talk about that title next yeah, episode. Yeah, well, for sure. Because that's actually something that the, um, I learned because my cousin listened to the audiobook. The pronunciation of that name is Triskel. not what I expected. But, mm. but yeah, we'll talk about that next episode. Um, but, but yeah, so we as we go through these chapters and we get chapter titles, I do think it's important or at least useful for us to consider what the different meanings of the titles could be. Obviously chapter three, the autarch's face, you know, it's easy to look at that and say, Oh, the you coin. Know, this is the coin, the autarch's yeah. face upon the coin. But there are many, many moments throughout the chapter where there are, there's a focus on describing faces and, and what is the definition of an autark, a self ruler, right? There is the autark that is a, a particular person, a title in the Commonwealth, 
but you can have this idea of self-rule, you know, independent of a an institution. Answer a question for me. Um, at the end of chapter three, he was expecting, he being Severian, was expecting to see Vodalus's face on the coin or was reeling from not seeing it. Why was he expecting to see Vodalus's face on there? We had already heard a description of the coin that had nothing of the sort. Uh, because he thought that he thought that Vodalus, you know, would have given him a coin of his own. Um, because oh, Vodalus's okay. whole thing is that he's fighting against the autarch. Okay. So he's like, why would he be giving me as a badge of loyalty to Vodalus? Why would he give me a coin with the face of the autarch on it? Hmm. Okay. And that is something to consider. That's something to keep in mind. Why would Vodalus yeah. do that? At the very end of chapter three, I think it was. It was at the end of chapter three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, uh, one freezing night. I crept back to the mausoleum and took out the Chrysos again. The worn, serene, androgynous face on its obverse was not the face of Vodalus. On its obverse, <laughs> I love that. I love the choice to say on its obverse. <laughs> uh, man's man's daring. Love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. And, and there's another another moment in chapter three towards the end that's a, a third indicator of the unreliability of this narrator. When I carried my bucket out to empty in the stone sink in the old yard, I saw one of the armored carriages halted there with its long-maned team steaming and stamping, and the guards in their fur-trimmed helmets sheepish, sheepishly accepting our smoking goblets of mulled wine. I caught the name Vodalus in the air. But at that moment, it seemed I was the only one who heard it. And suddenly I felt Vodalus had been only an Eidolon created by my imagination from the fog. And only the man I had slain with his own axe real. And there he admits that he killed the guy with the yep, axe yep, 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 two yep. chapters later. I just got that now, sadly The enough. dossiers I had fumbled through a moment before seemed blown like leaves against my face. It was in this instant of confusion that I realized for the first time that I am in some degree insane. insane. Yep. I remember that one. Mm. <laughs> this guy's all over the place. He's so volatile as a narrator. Yes. <laughs> what the isn't hell? It great? <laughs> He's a very volatile narrator. Oh boy. <laughs> mm. are, do, are we going to, maybe this is, maybe you're not going to answer because it could be a spoiler. I don't know. Are we going to get any other point of view characters? Or are we going to get like other writings? No. Like, is it going to switch? Oh, so no. for the entirety of the book, this is entirely written by Severian. Oh, okay, gotcha. We're not okay. Cool, cool, cool. Um, interesting, interesting. I kind of want to like. We've we've only got the one character really to talk about at the moment, Severian. We have been talking about him. This we've we've actually kind of smoothly transitioned into our characters uh, discussion. Yes, although before we? we we fully go on, I wanted to ask you. Sure. Uh, if you wanted to go into our language review, because this is going to be a new uh, segment yeah, uh, for the Book of the New Sun, um, like we did, you know, some deep lore discussions for the Wheel of Time or Cosmere discussions for Stormlight or Mistborn. Uh, here we're going to talk language because, oh boy, is the language <laughs> worth talking about. Yeah, I'm learning a lot of new words there. Um. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna do something a little unorthodox. Oh, you? Uh, yes, and I'm going to skip ahead to the end of this book, okay. and I'm going to read the appendix. Okay. 
A note on the translation. In rendering this book, originally composed in a tongue that has not yet achieved existence, into English, I might easily have saved myself a great deal of labor by having recourse to invented terms. In no case have I done so. Thus, in many instances, I have been forced to replace yet undiscovered concepts by their closest 20th century equivalents. Such words as peltast, androgyne, and exultant are substitutions of this kind, and are intended to be suggestive rather than definitive. Metal is usually, but not always, employed to designate a substance of the sort the word suggests to contemporary minds. It goes on, you know, for, for another page and a half, and... I have no idea know, what you just said. Yeah, continue. So this is, this is a joke. Uh, it's... It's Gene Wolfe writing in the first person as the author of this book. But he is telling us that I didn't actually write this book. I found a copy of this book from the future and I'm translating it into English. <laughs> okay. And that in this translation, I did not create any words. I didn't use any of these nonsensical words from the future. I translated them into English. And so even though there are concepts in this book that, not, that cannot be properly described in 20th century English, I'm going to use the closest approximation of a word that I can find. And that gives him a reason to play with his words and to, and to find a... Okay. Yes. Ah. And so that's ah. another level of unreliability ah. to yeah, the he, narrator. Where rules... Yeah, where the things that Severian is describing to us are not necessarily the things he's describing to us. <laughs> if he describes a horse, it may not be, in fact, it's probably not a horse as we know it. It's, it's a, probably a similar animal with four legs that people can ride, a draft animal of some kind, but it's not a horse. It's anachronistic? Yeah. Ah. Oh. Thus, you know, th so that last sentence, metal is usually, but not always, okay. employed to designate a substance of the sort the word suggests to contemporary minds. So he's saying, when I call something metal, it's... It's what you're thinking is metal. <laughs> it's, it's not necessarily what you're thinking of as metal, but it's close enough. Ah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Mr. Wolf? Mm. Yes. Now, uh, I have with me uh, the Lexicon Earthus, which is an incredible resource, although I, I have to admit it is not one that I generally um, recommend to first-time readers of the Book of the New Sun because uh, it will spoil things, uh, not only from the Book of the New Sun, but from uh, some of the accompanying short stories and the sequel, Earth of the New Sun. Uh um, but this is a fan created source book, uh, written by Michael Andre Driussi, uh, with the blessing of Gene Wolfe. And in, in fact, uh, includes a foreword written by Gene Wolfe. Nice. Nice. And it is, I wouldn't say an exhaustive or, or not a comprehensive, but it is an exhaustive collection of all of the crazy names and words that Wolf uses in the Book of the New Sun and accompanying texts. And 
he endeavors to find the real world definitions of them because Wolf outright tells us in that appendix, I did not make up any words. So all the names, all the people's names, those are real world names. Those are real world historical people. And in fact, every human being in this story is named after a Roman Catholic saint. Wow. Yes. Holy man. Yeah. That's a, that's a, about the same exact reaction that I had uh, when I first realized this. Um, so, like, for instance, there is an entry for Severian, and there is a, a very extensive um, uh, as you would expect entry for Severian in this. Yeah. But uh, so, and the way it's set up is that there will be a description, an in-world description of what this word means in the book. And then there will be a, an historical definition. And then there's commentary from Driussi on what he thinks Wolf was doing. So with Severian, for instance, under history, there are five St. Severians, early martyrs, Severian and Aquila, a husband and wife killed in Julia Caesarea of Mauritania, date unknown, a bishop of Scythopolis, in Galilee, who was murdered by Eutychian heretics with connivance of the Empress Eudocia, died in uh, died in 452. Uh, one of the martyrs at Nicodemia died in 303. And an Armenian senator who openly professed his Christianity and was torn with rakes until he died, uh, died in 320. And one of the four crowned martyrs. Outside of the church, Severian refers to either a member of an Encratite or Gnostic sect of the second century that condemned marriage and other social practices, or to a father, follower of Severus, the Monophysite patriarch of Antioch in the early fifth century. These histories aside, his name is one of severity, the opposite of mercy. Sorry, I'm going to be <laughs> piling on these censors for Drew to take care of later. Yeah. So. I, I want to caution, though, and this is one of the reasons that I don't recommend um, first-time readers use Lexicon Earthus. Um, it's really easy to to look at Severian, the titular character, and look at the history of the saints Severian and what the name kind of means and symbolizes and say, like, oh, of course he named this character this. Thus, all the other characters, I'll be able to find parallels to what those characters are going to be like based on the historical real world people they're named after. And that is not always a safe thing to do. Um, that will lead you astray. Uh, that's one of the reasons um, I don't it's recommend. Like a really easy way to set up expectations that you can flip. Uh-huh. If you're, that, that if you're consciously true. doing it. Yeah, yeah. I won't um, trust that. No. But, but the Lexicon Earthus is useful because there are, the names aside, there are ridiculous words yeah. in... Like, I have never read a text that so frequently and consistently uses words I'd never seen before. Sometimes I'm convinced that the e-reader, there's a, 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 a translation error or like an error in copy edit or something like that. Because 
I, I just don't, I don't recognize any of these as uh, English words. Certain mist is ever. What the, uh, the hell is that? Aver. So aver. Yeah. Aver. I've never heard aver uh, used. Mist, uh, so mistis? that's. Uh, I'm. I'm gonna pull up the. Certain mists available. Uh, Got to go to the end of the M's Mists. here. Mists. A mist. One initiated into mysteries. One initiated into mysteries. Yeah. Uh, okay. A person with privileged knowledge. Okay. And a ver. Yeah. Uh, that's more like they, they preach or like that's okay. what they say. They pro- okay purport or proclaim or yeah purports another a good um i'm gonna actually pull up the actual dictionary definition of of air to see what uh um to assert or affirm with confidence to allege Uh, as a fact yeah okay yeah interesting Interesting. yeah man i mean i've got a list of words that i learned today and one of them was on the first page i'm I'm actually Fire quite certain me. it was in the first sentence or definitely in the first paragraph, dude. Um, uh, okay. What do you got? Presentiment. I had no idea. I had never heard that Presentiment. before. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, it's, it's like for, foreknowledge. Yeah, yeah. I thought I figured it was pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. I just, I was amazed that my phone didn't know what the hell I was trying to type down either. Uh, clarions. Really? I had no clarions. idea what the hell clarions yes, are. Uh, it's a know. kind of trumpet. Yeah, it sounded like brass to me. I was, I got that from uh, mm-hmm. context. Another one you already brought up, and I'm glad that you pronounced it for me. Battelaire. Uh, yeah, it's a kind was. of like heavy curved French sword. Cool, cool. Um, this one I looked up on the moment because it just sounded really cool. Arctother. Arctother. Uh, that's okay. I I haven't looked this one up in a while, but if it's, if I remember ex- correctly, it's, it's a kind extinct, of like ancient bear. Yeah, it's an extinct genus of the Pleistocene short-faced bears endemic to Central and South America. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Chalcedony. Chalcedony? Chalcedony? Uh, Chalcedony, yeah. I got it right the first time. Are you serious? Chalcedony? Um, I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, it reminded me, me of chicanery, it. although it didn't seem to fit yeah. with context. And and it's oh that's right uh yeah yeah so it's yeah, a yeah. oh it's it's a, a kind of it's quartz a silica. yeah crystal yeah. uh crypto crystalline form of silica mm-hmm. okay yeah because that's described uh, he describes the statues in the necropolis yeah. as chalcedony antedating yeah I just knew where I understood right away what it was from context gg easy but still I'd never heard it before <laughs> antedating also uh-huh. necropolis again. I, I through context immediately. I, could, I just got enough Latin. I can look uh, at you it. You had but to have known Necropolis before this from the Camelot song. That was really the only time. Yeah. Interesting. So that one uh, for seriously. me that goes way Forgetting back. Something. Uh, thanks to I played the Heroes of Might and Magic games, uh, and in Heroes of Might and Magic three, the each of the factions. You know, there's like there's like the Castle Town, the Rampart Town, the Tower Town. Uh, and one of them is the necropolis, and that's like the undead town. Mm. They have zombies and skeletons, and vampires, and bone dragons, and liches and stuff. Nice. Yeah, um, it's the city of the dead. Yeah. This next one, I knew what both what both of these words, and I just never heard this term before, and it was hilarious. Ceremonial concubinage. concubinage. Uh, yeah, that was funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had a giggle at that one. I uh, see antedating necropolis here. Uh, that's actually a, a fascinating little bit of world building as well that you you find out <laughs> yeah. that the exultants, the, the kind of the by the way, not the ruling class, but the freaking cool arist- uh, aristocracy uh-huh. that they send their daughters to be like 
ceremonial concubines to the autark. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Very fascinating. Um, Cassigens? Cassigens? Cacogens? Cacogens. Cacogens. Thank you. Uh, Okay. Who visit Earth from the farther stars? What the hell Uh does that mean? Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) Uh-huh. That one gave me some pause. I figured I was going to get raffled. As it should. Uh, Cacogen means those filthy born. (laughs) <laughs> it is historically used as uh, an legendary trait or something like that. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was historically used as in um, uh, basically to describe somebody who's uh, got like m- like mixed lowborn ancestry mm-hmm. or is antisocial. Ah, didn't know the. And so thing. here, that's that's really interesting because uh, clearly the way it's used in this particular instance is talking about people from other planets yeah uh aliens but it's not immediately clear whether we're talking about humans from other planets or like literally non-human yeah. aliens that come to visit yeah yes yes mm-hmm. uh nephonars or sorry nenophars nenophars the, the nenophars. flowers Fucking water lilies your yep. water lilies. <laughs> oh, come on. Okay. That one was like, oh, that gave yeah, me it's pause, a, that one as well. It's a particular kind of water water lily with like a yeah. pale blue uh, color. Uh, yeah, yeah. I looked them up. They're pretty. Um, mm-hmm. Citrin metal. I'd never heard citrin before. Citrine? Like Is it citrine? C-I-T-R-I-N-E? Yep. Yeah. I guess that does uh, actually pronounces a little more easily. Yeah, like latrine. Yeah, and that's... That's a kind of, uh, it's a precious gem. Um, citrine is citrine. crap. I don't remember which month. It's it's like the birthstone for... What? Uh, dang it. What, I'm looking at it right what? now. Citrine birthstone It's going to be like July or month. something. I'm just going to throw it. It is I tend- November. I, I almost ah. said November. Yeah. Ah. Citrine is November. Yep. Yeah. And this last one, I wasn't sure if it was an in-world word or if it was, I guess, Eidolon. Eidolon, yeah. O-L-O-N. What the hell is an Eidolon? I actually didn't look up the definition for this one. Oh, man. I I want to say what it is off the top of my head, but I actually think I'm forgetting. Um, or or I, I might be mixing up words. My uh, vague memory of it is that it's like, like a peaceful, um, like nebulously, like... Um, uh, let me let me look it up. Because I got the definition right here. An unsubstantial image, specter, or phantom. So yeah, like, yeah, like it, it's it's a a spirit image of a living or dead person. Yeah, a shade or phantom lookalike of the human form. Okay, Eidolon. Ooh, that's cool. Yeah, I, I like I that always, word. I'm gonna. Use I guess it. like the the other time that I've like heard this used, it was in like a very. Um, it was describing like a very peaceful scene. So I've always had that like um, soothing kind of connotation with it. But I guess mm. that doesn't really necessarily uh, follow as part of the definition. Interesting. Um, but yeah. That wraps yeah. up my list of all of the new words that I've learned just in chapters one, two, and three. <laughs> oh, yeah. Shadow and Claw. Yeah. Oh, it's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it is yeah. good uh, d- stuff. Uh, differentiate shadow and claw and shadow of the torturer shadow of the torturer is part one right i think if i'm 
Yes, so there, not there are four volumes to the Book of the New Sun, yeah. and Shadow of the Torturer is volume one. The Claw of the Conciliator is volume two. The Sword of the Lictor is volume three. And The Citadel of the Autarch is volume four. So, okay, I've got Shadow and Claw, Sword and Citadel, The Earth mm-hmm. of the New Sun. I'm looking at the front of my of my purchase here. Yeah, so Earth of the New Sun is a, is a full novel sequel that he wrote years after the fact Ooh. he he did not initially intend to write that okay uh, but his publisher convinced him to do it okay okay so okay so for shadow and claw we're looking at uh okay got you the, the, the first two including um the claw of the conciliator is number two and then part the uh-huh. sword in the citadel is three and four as you had named there okay yes got her got her yes got her straightened out in my head for now yeah so, now, uh, if if you're ready to move on to talk about character a little bit more, um, go ahead. I pretty much said everything about Severian that I'm kind well, of impression of. So I, I want to talk about like some of the normal character things <laughs> that we talk about with other books. Sure. Do you like Severian so far? No. What do you think? He's of a him? torturer, and he's he's so blasé about killing a person. He doesn't ex- describe it, but he also makes has the balls to make mention of it later. And I mean, uh, just just the descriptions of some of the happening in, in the third chapter and, and, yeah. and how it just does not affect him he's so poker faced about all of it and he he writes as if he expects us to be poker faced about it as well it's very unsettling and i do not like him at all just simply on that although i'm I, like you know i'm three chapters in so i'm i'm, I'm cautious of uh, my expectation is just being concreted being set you know but i just no i definitely definitely do not like him to start Okay. Yeah. So it, it is these opening chapters. I think are really complicated in terms of, um, like obviously Severian is is writing this for a reason, and if he's writing it, he probably wants you to root for him, you know. Uh, and and I think he goes out of his way at certain moments to attempt to build sympathy. Uh, when he when he talks about some of his more childish tendencies in chapter two, especially when he kind of describes the the necropolis and how he would um, like how he enjoyed like sneaking away and uh, uh, going swimming, and in chapter three when he talks about the yeah you know, like he would watch the animals and and how he has all of these childlike impulses that he he has his hiding spot that he would go you know hang mm. out in to find comfort. Uh, I'm going to be quoting you that know. description of that hiding spot eventually in this episode. <laughs> Oof. Ooh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, but at the same time, like you said, we have these like almost academic descriptions of methods of torture. Like, you know, when he has, um, Oh my goodness. I uh, was it Master Palemon or Master? I think it was Master Palemon who's describing right in front of the woman. Um, like how he skinned her leg. Yep the the flaying of the right leg in the half boot, full boot. Oh, I mean, full boot. Yep. Come on, dude. Then it gets yeah, worse. he's like with yeah. with eight clamps. Uh, we we made one circular incision yeah. and then yeah. with with yeah. no further need of a knife use. after that circular yeah. incision. Just like oh my goodness, and then we get the description of of the blood vessels and pulsing. Yeah, careful work by Master Gerlos. Odo, Menace, and Eigel permitted the removal of everything between the knee and the toes without further help from the knife. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, okay, uh, nope. so this actually just reminded me. I have one more. 
I have one more uh, language thing that I want to point out. <laughs> okay. Uh, because in uh, like the next paragraph down, he asks um, Master Polemon about uh, Vodalus of the Wood. We get a title for him. Um, so we have St. Vodalus, who died in 725. He was an Irish or Scottish monk who crossed over to Gaul as a missionary and died a recluse near Soissons. Now, the etymology of, of that word, the word vode, V-O-D, is an obsolete Scottish form of wood. Huh. So his name, Vodalus, so he's like Woodman of the Wood. Oh my god. That's that's hilarious. <laughs> that's, yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah interesting. His, his name cracked me up. Oh my goodness! Um, but anyway, uh, yeah. So like that, dude. Sorry, continue. I'm so Severian, like, yeah. As as in all things Severian, he's complicated because we have these moments early on where, like, I feel like it's easy to get sucked into his childlike reprieves, and and you 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 know like you're rooting for the apprentices when they're going into town to like go down to the river and and swim and have fun and escape like this pretty terrible life as torturers apprentices you mm-hmm. know like they're living in oh well we'll get to that in a minute uh they're living ah. in a tower and uh and and have very like strict lives and and their like daily lessons are horrific um you know and and when they're going through town he talks about how the the people are like screaming insults at them and and stuff like they're not well loved um, the only time they're treated well is when the people of Nessus know that somebody they hate is in the care of the uh, the torturers, and then they're like yelling suggestions to them. Some as of which are like not swim. anatomically possible, if I remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, it's like it's this is not an easy life. Like it's a pretty yeah. horrible life that he has to lead. So it's it is easy to root for him when he tries to find solace in those little moments in his childhood. But then at the same time, we see Severian cold bloodedly murder a dude like five pages into the book. And, and we see him, if not eagerly willingly taking part in these classes and, and dedicating himself to the art of torture, you know? Yeah. So I'm I'm going to be curious to as we go on through through these books to see kind of gauge your your <laughs> like meter on Severian based on cool. what he's been doing. Okay, so if it's out of a hundred for today right now, I'm already at like I don't know zero would be like the most I've ever hated anyone ever. I think so. This guy would be like you said like a solid eleven. He's down to the Knicks. Oh, Corso that's territory. very low. He's pretty low already. I have all. Wow. I mean, anybody who participates in torture of 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 people or animals is is the lowest of the lowest form of human being in my opinion uh i have no nothing but contempt for severian at the moment honestly it's just and you're not willing to cut him any slack because he was like basically born into this and he didn't have any other choice no not even a little bit nope okay nope all right i hated oh my god how i mean it, it makes a little more sense it doesn't feel um forced or synthetic it makes a little more sense when you see his upbringing when you see how he's he's not supposed to listen to what they're saying and how the master i forget which one it was makes such a big deal about how no you didn't hear exactly what it was he was saying you didn't hear the name vodalus come out of the out of the uh the victim's mouth or anything like that it's supposed to Mm -hmm. sound like mice 
squealing to you. And I'm just like, come on, that's just, I don't like it. And I don't like anyone. So again, that, that moment where Severian shows that he, it's why it's believable has more humanity than the torturer who's trying to teach him. That doesn't tilt you. No, because then he's still like that. That's kind of worse. The fact that he still retains and shows to me that he still retains that little bit of humanity. He hasn't quite detached himself kind of makes it worse. Unless Even he has he's a huge kid. redemption arc. He's how old is he here? Ooh, I don't know how. I have the impression young. that he's like eleven. He's definitely young. Um, I don't remember. I think he hasn't said his age yet, and I don't remember which chapter it is. So I have the impression like, eleven to thirteen is where my. Yeah, he's young though. He's he's yeah. not like a a little kid, but he's. You can kill a man I mean, with I mean, a weapon. So this is an ongoing theme in these early chapters, where he talks about like being yeah. on the threshold of manhood. Um, like in so in chapter one, you know, obviously I had that quote where he says, "You know, this is the night I would, you know, yeah, achieve my manhood." And then like in, uh, but then we get in like chapter two and three, him doing very childish things and not really acting like a man at all. Like saying a nursery rhyme when he hides the coin, stuff like that. Well, it was badass nursery rhyme, though. I'm not gonna lie; these are dope. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then again, in in chapter three, um, when he goes to hide it, uh, he says, "It was afternoon before I found privacy, hiding myself in the ruins of the curtain wall among the shining mosses." Then hesitating with my fist poised in a ray of sun, because I was afraid that when I saw it at last, the disappointment would be more than I could bear. Not because I cared for its value. Though I was already a man, I had had so little money that any coin would have seemed a fortune to me. Mm-hmm. That sentence, I'm like, oh, you're lying to yourself, bud. <laughs> like, a little bit. <laughs> a little protesting a little too hard. Thou doth protest too much. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, so, so he has... And then later on, I was... Uh, okay, yeah, let me... For the charm to be really effective, this is after immediately after he says his little nursery rhyme, one had to walk around the spot at midnight carrying a corpse candle, but I found myself laughing at the thought, which suggested Draught's mummery about simples drawn at midnight from graves, and decided to rely on the verse alone, though I was somewhat astonished to discover that I was now old enough not to be ashamed of it. Yes. It's like, again, his, his self-image is constantly at odds, where he's like, he wants to be a man, he doesn't want to admit that he's a child and, and those are like coming into conflict with the reality that he is still a child. Mm. So he's, he's in that age range, you know? Yeah. And my like meter is very low. Yeah. There are very few characters lower currently, but there are some mm-hmm. namely Nick Sicorso, but you know, <laughs> Ah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Nick Sicorso is, he's a, a special type of evil. Um. <laughs> um, I don't really have anything else about Severian himself, character-oriented. Do you? Uh, yeah, so uh, just another couple of uh, moments where this theme of his conflict between manhood and childhood uh, okay. comes into play mm-hmm. uh, when he's talking about how the guild works and and the kind of the progression from apprentice to journeyman and uh, master. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, in the year before he is to become a journeyman, a senior apprentice does little but supervise the work of his juniors. His food and even his dress improve. The younger journeymen begin to treat him almost as an equal, and he has, above all, the elevating burden of responsibility and the pleasure of issuing and enforcing orders. When his elevation comes, he is an adult. So this is Severian saying that when you get elevated a journeyman, you become an adult. Yep. Severian okay. is not a journeyman. No, definitely not. So by his own admission here, in, in this interpretation of it... Or he's got a different definition of it. Interesting. Yeah. So, like, again, like it's this constant battle with the reliability of what Severian is reporting to us. You know, is he lying to himself? Is he lying to us? Is he forgetting it's, what it he's already like he's written? Just establishing is what... he doing it on purpose? You know, what procedure is there? It feels like yeah. he's, hmm. I feel like he's being far more general and he's not really, uh, hmm. at least that was the impression I got as a. That's certainly possible. God, that's interesting though. Give me lots to focus on going forward. I'm going to slow down even more for my three. It took me two days to go through three chapters and not because I didn't have time. I had plenty of time. And I did a lot of reading. I <laughs> did a lot of reading. Yeah. <laughs> it took me three times longer to read these three chapters than any other author would have taken me to read, I feel like. Oh, 100%. Well, yeah. yeah, and so th th this is why we're not doing, even though this is a short book, uh, we're not doing it in like one week or even two weeks or, there was, yeah. you know. Yeah, there, there were some sentences that I, uh, one in particular near, <laughs> near the beginning that I read nine times. There was one I had to read <laughs> nine times to properly appreciate that sentence as a whole. And I'm going to tell you right now, like, I don't think this is the most difficult Gene Wolfe book I've ever picked up. Like Peace, Sweet. the one that Neil Gaiman mentions in that one, uh, in that How to Read Gene Wolfe. I've tried reading that book twice, and I've never gotten more than 50 pages in just because it's like exhausting to read it. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating, but you're like, I have never seen sentences so labyrinthine, as in peace. <laughs> a labyrinthine sentence. That's so interesting. Yeah, it, the the number of asides and yep. like, and he doesn't fumble any of the balls. Statements. Yeah, and, yeah, cool. And okay, like you you have to legitimately try to understand what he's saying. <laughs> I'm already legitimately trying. It took, did you hear what I just said about nine times reading that sentence? Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already there, dude. This, yeah. is, this is awesome. This uh, is going to expand so many horizons for me. I'm excited about that. But yeah, and like, and again, this is, you know, this is where, I guess we can move into miscellaneous points at this point. Uh, this is going back to the reason that I wanted us to, you know, cover something like the 10,000 Doors of January or, you know, like just covering different types of stories, different types of books, because as writers, we're not going to get better if we only ever read one kind of book and one kind of storytelling. Uh, if we're only reading Sanderson-esque, Jordan-esque, Martin-esque fantasy, all we're going to ever be able to write is that exact thing, and we're not going to be able to do it um, interestingly or well because we're, we're not going to be adding anything new to the conversation, mm. you know? And, and by reading different things, I mean, you look back at Robert Jordan, one of the reasons the Wheel of Time is so good is because he drew from such a wide expanse of inspirations when he was developing the world and telling his stories. Like, we get themes of mythology and legend 
from all around the globe. It's not just, oh, like Western European mythology. It's, you know, he draws elements from like Indian mythology and Eastern Asian mythology and Middle Eastern mythology and like Norse mythology, Greek mythology. It's all over the place. And, and uh, Wolf is doing something similar with the book of the new sun, but he's going about it in a completely different way. And he's telling a different sort of story. Uh, So like, this is the main, the main miscellaneous point I have is that this story takes place on earth. It is spelled U R T H in Severian's time, but this is earth. This is thousands and thousands of years in the future of the planet we're living on right now. And Obviously, some things have changed. <laughs> the moon yeah. is green now. It's huge. Uh, the magic. sun is dying. Oh. You know, like oh, the it sun... can't be a normal stellar death, and it would be far more than thousands of years in the future. <laughs> uh, well, that's what I'm saying. Like this is inconceivably far in the future. That's impossible. Okay, sorry. There's just so many scientific things in wrong with that, but I'll just I'll ignore it then. Never mind. Um, so this is a genre of science fiction called dying Earth fiction. And this was popularized by Jack Vance, uh, who wrote The Tales of the Dying Earth. And uh, a lot of – so I've only read the first first volume of that. Uh, It is fascinating. It is – you can see its fingerprints all over the Book of the New Sun. Um, You can also see its fingerprints uh, all over other things like Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, uh, A lot of the, the way spells and magic work in tabletop role-playing games yeah. comes directly from how Jack Vance did things in Tales of the Dying Earth, which is fascinating. Uh, Wolf doesn't do quite that same thing, but he does engage in a uh, a similar kind of philosophy. Um, this idea of magic being indistinguishable from sufficiently advanced technology. Uh-huh. You know, Classic. so like Classic. it's easy at the beginning of the book of the new sun to be reading this as like a medieval fantasy story. You know, the, the opening page is like a group of guardsmen coming down with like knives and pikes and stuff. And, and they're yep. like unlocking a rusted gate and, you know, and they're outside a citadel, like all the signifiers are there for medieval fantasy. <laughs> and then two pages later, there's like a violet energy bolt being shot out of a gun and like a, uh, some kind of airborne craft yeah. that flies away, you know? And, and as we read further in, we get the descriptions of the Citadel itself. The real work of our guild is carried out below all this. Just underground lies the examination room beneath it. And thus outside the tower proper for the examination room was the propulsion chamber of the original structure. Okay. See, I thought I was taking that like metaphorically speaking. That was literal. <laughs> like, what? The Matichin oh, Tower is a spaceship. Okay, I was th- th- that has was totally like landed. Metaphorical. No, there at multiple points he describes things like uh, when when he describes like how oh, they sorry, take I in that was a contradictory tone. I believe you. I'm just like yeah, yeah. Yeah, so or... when he describes how the guild takes in new like children and they will only accept them if they're like below a certain height. Mm-hmm. And the bar he he talks about these for the height yeah, yeah, measurement sticks out is the... sticking out of a bulkhead. Yeah. And okay. they describe how like where they live isn't quite the top of the tower because the tower is where the 
like the guns are. Again, I took guns as metaphorical too. Oh my god! Yeah, as as like, compulsion. Uh, I this was like, is oh, this is where, this is like, in some manner. This is okay. Wow. Yeah, this is in some manner a like grounded spaceship. That's high charity. It's <laughs> yeah, it's way way smaller. Yeah, yeah, like the forerunner, like the forerunner ship in the middle of high charity. Yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, so like it's easy to read this as a fantasy story with medieval tech, and there is some medieval tech because. We're so far in the future that society has degraded. It's like, kind of like a flip on. It's like inverse of Star Wars in a, lo- a long time ago in a galaxy far away when technology is really good. This is the opposite. A long time in the future when technology sucks. Very, very close to home. <laughs> huh. Very, very. Yeah. Literally, literally very close home. Yeah. That's awesome. I have so many scientific issues with that that I want to about, but whatever. Let it slide. Magic can be fine. I'll let it slide. I don't like the timeline. Yeah. I mean, by the time, yeah. but our, our sun is like 50 to 55% of the way through its lifespan. By the time it reaches 60, the, the surface of the earth will be inhospitable to life. I mean, talking about the sun dying is something that's just so ridiculous that people would have to. No. No. Ah, sorry. <laughs> I want to like, rant about is, that now. <laughs> this is one of like the key conceits of dying earth. Uh, yeah. Science fiction is that the sun is cooling. Yeah. Earth is cooling and, and human life is, is going up. to die. <laughs> That's what's happening. The um, sun is getting brighter and brighter is what's happening. It's going to cook the surface of the earth. <laughs> 500 million years ago, life was single celled organisms. Practically 500 million years in the future, the sun will be mostly the same, but we'll be gone. Everything will be gone. The earth won't even be hospitable to life. Ah, just, uh, okay. So this is fantasy. Yeah, yeah. There's magic, Rob. Rob there's Rob. Rob. There's magic. You could, if you can live with magic, you can live with. Yeah, like, and science. so that is the other thing. the The flip side of this is that once you read closely enough to pick up on these signifiers of like, oh, this is Earth, and like, this is science fiction. It's also dangerously easy to say. There is no magic. Everything is just advanced technology. But no, this is fantasy. And as we read further in, you're going to start seeing how Wolf plays fast and loose with the rules of science fiction and fantasy and blends the genres. Any sufficiently advanced technology and so on and so forth. Interesting. Yep. I like the note. It's, it's, I mean, I, yeah, I like the premise. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, we can see easily now why we're doing these episodes the way we are, because we're about an hour and 20 minutes in and we've covered three chapters of this book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and we haven't covered everything there is to cover. I'm sure on a second read in a year from now, we would, we could find something else, but not. Yeah. And and that is one thing, like there are some really, really good podcasts out there that have already covered the book of the new sun. And I don't want to just like, tread the same ground mm-hmm. um you know there's there's alzebo soup which is a phenomenal resource uh, for first-time readers and the goal of that is more to like help a first-time reader understand the book of the new sun and what we're that. doing here is looking more into like the techniques yeah. and and the uses of what wolf is doing as a writer like i obviously we are going to touch on like What's going on in the story? Because Rob, it's your first time through. Yeah. I know many of our listeners, it's the first time. We're gonna do some of that, but that's not the main focus. I'm there with you guys, because uh, it's like 
why would we bother? There's already a resource out there that could do that way better than I ever could. Um, uh, yeah, like no kidding. Check out Alzebo Soup. They they do an incredible job on their podcast. Um, they go through even more slowly than we do. Uh, they do like one to two chapters per episode. Uh, even there are some chapters that they have like multiple episodes for one chapter. Nice. Um, yeah. Uh, so if if you want to get like the really nitty gritty details of the plot and and an explanation of exactly what's going on on the page, check them out. Uh, but if what we've gone through today is you know more your speed, where you're interested in uh, some of the more high level commentary on writing structures and styles and language, um, we hope you continue listening with us. Uh, yes. So, uh, but so. do you have any further miscellaneous points before we wrap uh, up, Rob? I had a giggle about Yamar the Almost Just. Yeah. And and observing, and I'm quoting here, trust me, I need to say this, I'm quoting. <laughs> observing mm-hmm. how cruel the women were and how often they exceeded the punishments he had decreed, ordered that there should be women among the torturers no more. <laughs> yep. I love how he took the time to write a classy paragraph for that amount of incredible sexism. It was, it was uh, funny. <laughs> so this, this is a thing. Um, I'm actually glad you brought this up when you did. Uh, yeah. Severian is Severian has some, some problems some in, predispositions. in his, yeah. In his regard for the fairer sex, um, which you don't say, yeah, let's be honest, probably not altogether surprising for a guy who grew up in a purely male, very unhealthy, uh, torture society. Yep. Imagine <laughs> um, my shock. Not altogether surprising. Um, uh, but it's it's extra funny that you brought up Imar the Almost Just because there's more to that line than, y- than you could possibly know until you, after you've read the whole thing. Really? Um, yeah. It's, it's, what? Okay. It's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. But, I mean, that's how like 90% of the lines in this are. Like, there's uh. so much foreshadowing that, or, or, or like, recursive references that you couldn't possibly realize are references until after you've reread the books. Like, <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's my, yeah. that's my jam right there. Yeah. Okay. Like a future Guarantee book is going to refer back to this one. Yeah. Okay. Um, Sweet. Yeah. Uh, and, and that just plays with the, the like time weirdness that, Wolf is doing with his little joke in the appendix where he's like, this is a story that is from unimaginably far in the future and I'm translating it now. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, and wrapping up with my initial impressions, I just have to say this writing is, I mean, we've, we've, we've been explaining why, but I'm just going to say this writing is fucking beautiful. And I yeah. had promised that I was going to earlier in the episode that I was going to uh, expand upon um, the sights from inside his place of safety, inside the mausoleum there. This mm. quote here just had me, I love it. The Caracas or Caracas coarse vipers at me and the hawk lifted his wings to the wind from the top of a pine. I'm laying in bed at this point, Rob Santos, reading these words and I'm totally enthralled. And it goes on, a moment suffices to describe these things. The decades of a Saros would not be long enough for me to write all they meant to the ragged apprentice boy I was. And this is where I zoom out mentally enough to realize that I'm smiling like an idiot as I'm reading these gorgeously constructed sentences. All they meant to the ragged apprentice boy I was. 
taking the time to paint that moment as a memory and as a description of our narrator from our narrator. Just, just f***ing brilliant. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. I, I was like that Pedro Pascal. Oh, sorry. I'm going to make that <laughs> meme. I'm going to make that meme. Sorry. I just, I, I'm going to okay. shut up. It's coming out. I'm going to do it five minutes right, after right. we wrap it. I'm going to see it on Discord. I'm going to put yeah. it in the Gene Wolf Discord. All right, cool. Cool. Yeah. Um, and so my final quote for, for today uh, was a similar kind of idea from what you had, um, uh, yeah? but a, a, a different tone entirely. The lights of the oubliette are of that ancient kind that is said to burn forever, though some have now gone out. In the gloom of those corridors, my feelings that morning were not gloomy, but joyous. Here I would labor when I became a journeyman. Here I would practice the ancient art and raise myself to the rank of master. Here I would lay the foundation for the restoration of our guild to its former glory. The very air of the place seemed to wrap me like a blanket that had been warmed before some clean-scented fire. Clean-scented fire. Hmm. Hmm. That's a beautiful. Yeah. That's so beautiful. We have lots more of those going forward. Oh I yes, promise. we will. I promise. Oh yes, we will. I can tell. Uh, right on. But right. shall we? Shall we head into the final draft? Yeah, one hundred percent. And my, my final draft is very similar to a previous one that I've that I've had. Um, once again, I'm going into the tea. I've been going pretty hard on tea lately. Although today I haven't had one and a half liters of it. I've only had the, this the single mug uh, that I'm holding right here. Once again, it was the blueberry ginseng tea, and mm-hmm. it's just it's so nice. It is it is just so very nice to read Gene Wolfe, to talk about Gene Wolfe, and to enjoy a nice blueberry ginseng tea. So that's, that's honestly still what I'm drinking. Very nice. How yeah. about your end? Well, I am drinking some premium Indian tonic water from Fever Tree, as per usual. Uh, ah. But But of course, I have a beer to talk about. And this one is actually an English beer. Uh... This is a milk stout, a vanilla milk stout from uh, Gorgeous Brewery in, uh, oh, let me double check, Uh, London. Yeah, it's from London. Um, I have not yet had a chance to drink this one, but I am looking forward to it when I can. Uh, And this one goes out to Vodalus and Thea and Thea. uh, uh, the, the etymology the, of that name, by the way, Thea. We have to talk about that in the next episode. Oh Remind yeah. Me. Oh we'll we'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is not the last That's you the will one see I of Vodalus and Thea. Uh, <laughs> I recognize that one. Yeah. But this goes out to their um, illicit nighttime activities. This beer is called Grave Digger. Oh, starting strong with the thematically appropriate beers. That's great. Yeah, For such a yeah. momentous change in Severian, a, a professed momentous change in Severian's life. I love it. That was, that was, mm-hmm. I hit the home. That, that was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well so that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, let me pull up the spreadsheet. Let me just double check. Uh, yeah, so I believe this is going to be episode 173 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Nice. Next up, we are going to be continuing right on in with chapters four through eight of The Shadow of the Torturer. Uh, as always, if you want to support Inking Out Loud, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud or on Coffee uh, K-O-F-I. Uh, all of that support is... You know, very much appreciated. It allows us to keep this podcast going strong as we 
close in on 200 episodes and dive into our most ambitious uh, series yet. Yeah. We are very excited. That said, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Right here. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.